The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Uh, Ron and Kay are going to lead us in our scripture reading and prayer this morning. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins, and so both are preserved. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we are thankful for this uh, passage in Scripture. Lord, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even as Matthew sat there, even as Matthew was a sinner, Lord, at a moment in time, your presence filled his heart and you spoke to him and said, follow me. He left everything to follow you, Lord. Father, teach us your ways. Your mercy is new every day. Your mercy is great. We just thank you for your mercy, Lord. And Father, teach us about your mercy. Lord, teach us about your mercy toward others, Lord. Lord God, like Paul said, uh, of sinners, I'm the worst. I'm the worst of the lot. Lord, that was his opinion of himself. Without Christ, we have nothing to bring, Lord. It's all by your grace. And we just thank you for your amazing grace this morning, Lord. God, I just pray you'll give us a, just give us an awakening anew and afresh to your grace, Lord, how to live it out every day. And we just give you the praise and the glory for such a great salvation today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ron and Kay. You can actually take that down with you because it's going to be in my way. Well, we're finally back in the book of Matthew. We've been going verse by verse, and I don't think I've preached a message from Matthew since the beginning of December. How about that? So I'm excited to jump back in our little journey here. And uh, so many of you know that for, for many years, actually well over two decades, I have been involved in prison ministries. I go to uh, different prisons and halfway houses and work with inmates and preach and teach and sing and disciple. As a matter of fact, I started this, actually, I, I think I was 16, and I couldn't go to a, like, 
uh, an adult prison then, but I could go to juvie, and I could teach. We had a, a juvenile detention center right across from Central Baptist Church where I grew up, and I would go during the Sunday school hour, and I'd take my little guitar over there, and I'd sing a couple songs to, to these uh, teenagers who were locked up in, in, in juvie. And so from there at 18, uh, I went to uh, West Liberty and to, uh, to the prison there, and that's a scary feeling when those doors close behind you, right? And, uh, but it, it's been a great experience doing prison ministry, and, and I've always been fond of it, and, and I wasn't sure why. I was thinking recently, why is it that I'm so drawn to minister to inmates? Well, I think this could be why. It's not hard to convince an inmate of their depravity. It's not hard to convince them that they need the Lord. It's not hard to convince them that they need Jesus, that they need a Savior, that they can't earn their way to heaven or to salvation. They can't earn their relationship with God. Very easy, in fact, because they know they're at the lowest point of their life, and they know, I need help. It's quite a different story in 20 years of vocational ministry in the church because it's hard to get religious people to understand, particularly here in the Bible Belt, that they actually, oh yeah, they'd say, I believe in Jesus, but to get them to realize that as Ron just prayed, that we are all sinners and none of us have anything to bring to the table that contributes to our salvation. Every one of you in here, including myself, every one of us, we need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ as much as everybody behind bars this morning. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, listen, it is not for good people. It is for sinners who know their depravity and turn to Jesus for wholeness and forgiveness. That's what the good news is. So what we're going to see in the passage this morning is that we all are, in fact, sinners in need of God's grace. And so in the preceding story in Matthew uh, chapter 9, if you missed this um, sermon, you can go on online. You can find it. from the. It's back in the beginning of December. But we see that Jesus encounters a paralytic. Remember, the, the paralytic's friends lowered him through a roof, and Jesus not only heals him, but he has the audacity to claim that he can forgive his sins. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And the people in the room are astonished because it is only God who can forgive sins. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is God the Son. So Jesus forgives in this last passage now, we don't know much about the paralytic's life. We don't know, quote-unquote, how sinful he was, but we know he needed forgiveness. So then this begs the question, how far does Jesus' forgiveness extend? What is the reach of that forgiveness? And I think we get a glimpse of that in today's text. The message of Jesus ex extends far, doesn't it? And it causes transformation and it causes wholeness to the most unlikely candidates. Now, when you hear the message of Jesus Christ, you hear that he came to offer us forgiveness and to bring us into a relationship with God, you think that people would be overjoyed and would respond positively to this message without exception. <laughs> would you not think that'd be the case? Is that the case? No. 
There are many who don't believe it. There are many who reject it. There are many who don't want it. They love their sin, and they want to, they're quite happy to stay there. Thank you. That's not a new problem. Matter of fact, we see it in our text today as Jesus is going uh, th- throughout this ancient world that some received him, as we'll see today, and then others rebuked him. Others denied him. Others condemned him. So I want to look today, uh, consider this passage. I want to look at three responses to Jesus' ministry. I hope you have a note sheet. Uh, three responses to Jesus' ministry. So number one, we're going to look at the response of the tax collectors and sinners. And as we'll see, they respond receptively. Tax collectors and sinners respond receptively. Look at me, uh, look at Matthew um, chapter 9 and verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So as Jesus left Capernaum, he, he, he comes across this man named Matthew, who by the way is also called Levi. And Matthew, if you didn't know, is the one who wrote the book that we're in. The book of Matthew makes sense, doesn't it? And so Matthew here is penning these words about himself. And he actually, I think out of great humility, says very little about this encounter with Jesus. But what he does say is quite profound. He says that Matthew is sitting in a tax booth. So we read that and go, okay. He worked for the IRS, whatever, fine. Well, you have to understand, I'm not saying that tax collectors are uh, loved today, but in the first century, tax collectors in in Jesus' day, uh, particularly in the Jewish community, they were amongst the most despised people. And here's why. Jewish people at that time were under the oppressive forces of the Roman Empire. And so tax collectors, they were nationals who were agents of the Roman oppressors, the Roman occupiers. And so Matthew, along with every other tax collector, they were seen as working against their own people. They were known not only for collecting taxes for Rome, but here's what they could do. They owned these tax franchises, and they paid high dollar for the franchises, and then they got to charge over and above whatever they could get out of someone over and, above the, over and above the Roman tax, they could pocket that money. And they were quite wealthy. Do you think the Jews were quite particularly fond of these people? No. Think about this. Imagine a Jew during Holocaust in, in Germany. Imagine a Jew who decides to save his own life. Says, hey, you know what? He goes to the Nazis and he says, I'm going to help you out. I'm going to help you oppress my own people if you'll spare my life. If you'll give me a little something. How do you think the Jews would have responded? This is probably in a lesser sense, but this is the way that the Jews felt about Matthew and his type. Matthew was seen as a a traitor of all traitors. And as a matter of fact, Matthew would have been uh, likely excommunicated from the religious community. No access to the temple. You're a traitor. We want nothing to do with you. That's how the religious community, particularly the religious leaders, looked at someone like 
Matthew. But I love that Jesus receives those. He pursues those who religious people reject. Isn't that good? And that's exactly what we see here in the story. Matthew, the, the second part of verse 9, he said, Jesus says to him, follow me. Follow me. It's interesting that Jesus pursues, approaches one of the most condemned and despised men amongst the Jews. And not only does Jesus say, follow me, but as we know, Jesus is inviting Matthew to be one of his 12 closest followers. He's saying, yes, follow me, be part of the kingdom, but I want to invite you, Matthew, into my inner circle. How profound. And so I want us to consider then Matthew's response. It's very simple, verse 9, the end there, and it says, and Matthew rose and followed him. So just put yourself in Matthew's shoes for a moment. You have been rejected. You've been rejected by the religious community. And even if you're sorry for what you did, it's like there's no turning back. They're never going to receive you. They're always going to see you, or see you as a traitor. You're hurt. You feel alone. You feel rejected. You're sorry for what you've done, but you feel like it's too late. There's no turning back. Now, it's likely that Matthew has heard, probably encountered, if not at least he has heard, about all the miracles that Jesus has been performing. And he's heard about the teachings of Jesus and the, the, uh, the message of the kingdom of God. And Matthew is a Jew, and he, he is receptive to this, this message. But I, I think it's quite probable that Matthew probably just assumed, you know what? Jesus is probably going to be like the rest of the religious community. He's not going to want anything to do with me. So it's interesting here that, that Matthew does not approach Jesus, but Jesus approaches Matthew. And Jesus doesn't come and say, hey, I know what you've been doing. I know you're a traitor. He just says, hey, follow me. And Matthew is so taken by the beauty and the wonder and the glory and the mercy of Christ the Bible says he just gets up and he follows him. Friends, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the message of the kingdom, it is radically inclusive. It is radically inclusive. We are often accused, Christians, we are often accused of being elitists and exclusive. It's not true. Do you know that Christianity is the most inclusive religion there is? You say, well, how, how can you say that? Well, very simply, every other religion in the world says this. If you want to get to God, if you want to get to heaven, if you want salvation, whatever it is they're offering, you have to do X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C, one, two, three, and then you can get to this place. You can have a relationship with God. You can go to heaven, whatever it is they're offering. But it's on you, which means only the most disciplined, only the most moral, only the best amongst us can get to God. That's exclusive. That means if you grew up on the wrong side of the, the, the tracks and you grew up in a toxic environment and, and you picked up some of these habits and you don't have those disciplines to change, that religion's not for you. You can never reach whatever it is they're offering. But Christianity is totally different. 
It says none of us are good enough <laughs> to get there. But Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So it says, listen, anybody, anyone in here, anyone listening, anybody in the world, if you will receive Christ, if you will turn from yourself and turn to Jesus, you can be saved. It's incredibly inclusive. Whosoever shall believe. Amen? That means no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, you can receive Christ. You can receive salvation. Thank you, Lord. But I want to give caution here because you hear that and you say, well, does that mean just everybody gets in? Does that mean that God doesn't care how we live? No. The gospel is radically inclusive, but it's also very transformative. <laughs> it demands transformation. The message of the gospel is not this. Come to Jesus and stay as you are. No, it's come to Jesus and let him make you into this new and better human being, the way you were created to live. He'll empower you to change. He, say, he doesn't say, Matthew, hey, high five me. He says, Matthew, follow me. And not just walk where I'm walking, but he's, he's saying, do what I do. Imitate me. Follow me. In Matthew 4, verse 17, um, Matthew himself, as he writes this gospel account, is setting up the, the, the message and the ministry of Jesus. And he gives this kind of summary statement. This is verse 17. He says that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, so this is the summary of Jesus' message. Repent. First word, repent. Everybody say it. Repent. For the time, or for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. So friends, to follow Jesus, anybody can come to him, anybody can follow him, but when we come to him, repentance is necessary. And this is precisely Matthew's experience. Now, again, I think out of Matthew's humility, we don't know this from his account, but I want to ask you to flip over with me to the book of Luke in chapter 5 and we're going to read about Luke's account of Matthew's experience and his calling. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. It says, After this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. Again, this is Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And watch this. And he said to him, Follow me, and leaving everything, and leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. That's what it looks like to truly turn to Jesus. Matthew had a job that took advantage of the weak and the poor, and Christ is not much about that. He didn't condemn him from what he was doing, but he said, hey, follow me. I'll transform you. Follow me. And Matthew got up, and he lost he left everything, meaning he left a very lucrative job. And he was considered a Roman authority, and scholars tell us he would not have been able to go back and make this kind of money again. He couldn't follow Jesus and change his mind and come back. When you get up from that booth and you walk away, it's done, and you're giving your paycheck away. It's a big risk, isn't it? But Matthew sees Jesus as so much more beautiful than anything the world has to offer. And I'm convinced there's some people in here that feel that same way about Jesus Christ. So there's a popular notion, and, and this, 
frustrates me when I hear pastors talk like this. That you can just pray a prayer to receive Jesus. Oh, he's just a prayer away. Well, that's true. But they say all you got to do, you got to come down to the altar. You got to ask Jesus into your heart. And then it's like, and then maybe one day you'll start actually following him or whatever. And it's like, okay, man, I'll just say a prayer and keep on living however I want. It doesn't work that way. There's a clo- close friend of Gandhi's who, uh, who, who asked him this. He said, if you admire Christ so much, why don't you become a Christian? And it's said that Gandhi replied like this. He says, when I meet a Christian who is actually a follower of Christ, I might consider it. Boy, that burns. But I think that's the testimony of most Christians today. Well, I prayed a prayer. I grew up in church. But are you really a Christ follower? Have you done as Matthew? Have you got up and left your sin behind? I'm not saying that you're perfect, that you've never sinned. But have you, have you said, Lord, I'm going to turn from my sin and I want to follow you. And then when you do that, the Lord, see, he empowers you to follow him. You don't have to do it on your own. He gives you his spirit. He changes your life. He transforms you so that now the bend of your heart is to worship him, to serve him. It's a beautiful thing. The Bible knows nothing of salvation apart from transformation. Friends, the gospel changes us. Matthew's transformation, as a matter of fact, it doesn't stop with himself. He actually gets this immediately. He gets this burden from other people, for other people. I mean, think about this. He goes from extorting people and, and taking people from money and taking advantage of people. And I want you to look at verse 10, his, what he does immediately after following Jesus. It says, as Jesus reclined at a table in the house. This is Matthew's house. There's a meal going on. <laughs> it says, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Matthew is throwing this party, and he, his, he wants his, this is not about Matthew anymore. He says, hey, I know some other tax collectors. I know some other people who've been rejected by the religious community. I know some other people who haven't been living for God. Can they come and hear about you, Jesus, and what you're doing? He immediately gets this burden for other people, and he throws this celebratory feast. Friends, let me just say this, and I'll move on. The grace of God is not meant to flow just to us. It is meant to flow through us. You cannot separate a heart for God and a heart for people. If you don't care about the lost, if you don't love lost people, if you don't love people in general, you don't love the Lord. You can't separate those two things. So Matthew and the tax collectors and the sinners, they are receptive to Jesus' ministry. Their lives are remarkably remarkably transformed. Secondly, that's my longest point, by the way. I know it's 1145. Don't freak out. (laughs) Secondly, religious leaders, these are the religious leaders in, in the Jewish community, they respond resentfully. Resentfully. Let's get verse 11. So remember, Jesus is eating with these tax collectors and sinners. And here's what verse 11 says. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jerks. (laughs) See, in the ancient world, eating with someone 
was a, an expression of really intimate friendship and acceptance. You didn't eat with just anybody. So I want you to consider the Pharisees' contempt for Jesus. They, they are self-righteous. And by the way, they are blinded by their self-righteousness. And it's interesting here. They're cowards. Like many people like this are. They don't go to Jesus. Did you notice that? They go to his disciples. They're trying to stir up division. So they don't approach Jesus directly. And their question about why he would dare dine with such people as tax collectors and sinners, it's actually rhetorical. They don't really want an answer. They have no category for this. They pride themselves, these religious leaders, in separatism. They are high and mighty, and they are put on a, they put themselves on a pedestal, and they don't want to deal with lowly, lowly people like the tax collectors and sinners. Have you known anybody like that? So they think, how in the world could a teacher of the law claiming to be here inaugurating the kingdom of God, how, how can someone who represents God fellowship with such people? And the answer is real simple. In their minds, they can't impossible. The crux of the criticism, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Yes and amen. Thank you very much. So look at Jesus' response. response. He's so brilliant. <laughs> Let's read verses 12 and 13. It says, but when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Interesting response. He's saying to these religious leaders, in essence, if you were as moral and as spiritual as you think, if you, if you are that way, if you, if you are as righteous as you say you are, you have no use for me. I'm a, you don't need a Messiah. You're your own Savior. He's saying, I didn't come for you. These tax collectors, on the other hand, they're like the prisoners I was talking about at the beginning of my message. They know of their depravity. They know they're spiritually sick. That's who I came for. Because the sinful, the spiritually sick, they need a spiritual physician. And then he gives them this brilliant analogy a physician must be willing to go to those who are sick. Someone who offers forgiveness must be willing to go amongst people who are spiritually sick. We've been in this pandemic for like, what, two years now? We have a lot of medical professionals in our church. And uh, let me just say, I, I think I've said this before, but I want to say right now to all of you men and women who serve uh, in, in the hospitals and doctor's offices and you do what you do, thank you. Thank you for what you've done over the last two years. Right? We so appreciate you. I have watched each of you put yourself in harm's way every single day to go near the sick and to help those who are in need. What kind of nurse, what kind of APRN, what kind of doctor kind of surgeon would you be if you said, you know what, during this pandemic, I don't really want to get COVID. I'm just going to stay home. And they're sick. You know, your hospital calls you. They're like, hey, why aren't you coming in today? Well, there's sick people there. <laughs> right? It's like, yep. <laughs> 
And so, I mean, so, so you think, you see what Jesus is doing here? The, the Pharisees are going, Jesus, you claim to be of God. You claim to be able to offer forgiveness. Why in the world would you associate with such low lives? And Jesus says, would a doctor be a good doctor if he didn't go around the sick people? These tax collectors, these sinners, they need somebody spiritual. They need somebody who can bring them to God. I came for them. And then he goes on to say, this is brilliant, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And he tells them, he says, uh, go and find out what this means. This is really cool because... The, the quote, God desires mercy and not sacrifice, comes from the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the book of Hosea, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. Now, the religious leaders to whom Jesus is talking to, they are, it, it's actually the Pharisees and the scribes. And so you have the leaders and you have the theologians, the scholars of the day. They, they are the ones who teach the Jewish community, what the Old Testament scriptures mean. And when Jesus says, hey, go and read this. Go and figure out what this means. And he quotes Hosea 6.6. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. He's putting them down. It's a rebuke. When a, when a rabbi would say that to a student, it's to say, listen, you should know this and you don't. Go study your Bible some more. So Jesus is telling these religious leaders who think they are high and mighty, he says, uh, you might want to go read your Old Testament again. You might want to go read the Scriptures again. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And here's what it means. The, the, the Pharisees, the, the leaders, they were all about rituals and traditions, but they had no heart for God. And the Lord is saying, your sacrifices, your prayers, your fasting, all of these things you do, they mean nothing to me if your heart is not for me and, by the way, for other people. So you're doing all these prayers and you're doing all these, you're giving alms and you're fasting every week and you're doing all this, but you are not having, you're refusing to have compassion on these sinners and tax collectors. That is the, a stench in the nostrils of God. So why don't you go read your Old Testament again, you Pharisees. And then he goes on to say, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Remember the gospel. Remember what I said? It's not for good people. You know why? Because there are no good people except for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's a curious statement. I came not for the righteous because the Bible does say very clearly. I mean, Mark chapter 10, Jesus says to this man, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. In Romans 3.10, Paul writes, quoting Psalm 14, Psalm 53, he says, None is righteous, no, not one. And so Jesus says here, I didn't come for the righteous He's not contradicting the Bible. He's not saying, well, there are some righteous. What he's saying is, Pharisees, listen, you are blinded by your self-righteousness. You think you're so spiritual, which means I'm of no use to you. I'll leave you to yourselves, but I am happy to associate with the tax collector, the sinner, the prisoner. Because these people know of their illness. And they'll receive me. This is why it's important when we share Christ that we also share 
the bad news along with the good news. Because if you don't know of your depravity, if you don't know that without Christ, you are destined for eternal judgment, if you don't know that apart from Christ, no matter how good you think you are, that you fall short of the glory of God, and you are actually, Romans says, you are an enemy of God, if you don't know that, you don't know why you need salvation. It's like, save from what? You've got to know the bad news before the good news is going to make sense. It's like if you don't know you're sick, if you don't feel a symptom, you're probably not going to go to the doctor. That's Jesus' point. So he's just saying, listen, you're self-righteous. You're blinded by your self-righteousness. I'm of no use to you. So Matthew and his friends respond to Jesus receptively. The religious leaders respond resentfully. And finally, John the Baptist's disciples respond inquisitively. Let me read verse 14. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now John the Baptist told those whom he baptized, we read about this in the beginning of Matthew, he told them about Jesus. But he's now in prison, and his disciples have a fair question about fasting. And, and I, don't, I don't think their question, by the way, is antagonistic. It's just inquisitive. We've not been taught like this. We've been taught that you have to regularly fast. Why, Jesus, don't your disciples fast? They've heard about these big feasts that Jesus is having. Why, why the disciples, the John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees are over here suffering and going hungry. It's like, dude, you're, you're disciples. And they're like having these massive banquets. What's going on here? See, in the Old Testament... The law prescribed one fast per year for the people of Israel on the Day of Atonement. And the, uh, excuse me, the Day of Atonement. And you can find that in Leviticus 16, 29, and 31. Jewish tradition, however, had come to say, if you want to be close to God, you've got to fast two times per week. There's some hangry people in that Jewish community. Twice every week, if you want to know God, if you want to be part of our community, you've got to fast twice per week. And so the Pharisees have created these extra rules and these extra regulations as a means of relating to God and being part of that religious community. And so John the Baptist's disciples, they adhere to these traditions. This is how they've been taught. And now they, they come to Jesus perplexed. Your disciples don't have to do this. What's up? And Jesus closes with three analogies. Number one, he gives the picture of a wedding. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Weddings are a big deal in this day and age. Here in America, aren't they? Like, they are expensive. Some mamas and daddies say amen to that. I've never seen anything like it. They say it's nothing to drop $10,000, $20,000 on a wedding now. And there's a lot that goes into it. And we have, you know, I just got to do Courtney and, and Chris's wedding in, in October. And it was a, I know you had lots of planning, but it was a Friday night, Saturday afternoon, uh, into the Saturday evening event. Think of this. In the Jewish community in the first century, 
Wedding festivities lasted for seven days. All day, every day. Could you imagine planning for that? Parents, could you imagine paying for that? And it's a time of celebration. That's what the wedding is about. That's what the festivities are about. And so Jesus is saying, listen, a wedding is celebratory. It's not, it's not a place for fasting because Old Testament fasting, it had to do with mourning, mourning over sin, mourning over loss. So could you imagine you guys had a terrific spread at your rehearsal dinner and your wedding reception? We had a lot of people from our church there. Could you imagine if we would have come in and, you know, you, you offer us food and we're like, all gloomy, we're fasting today. We're in the back praying together and, you know, not showing any joy. You're like those jerks. <laughs> you better eat. You better celebrate. There, there's an appropriate time to fast, and there's appropriate time to celebrate and to feast. We're really good at feasting in this church. They're called potlucks. We're a happy, joyous people. Come on, somebody. So what happens at a wedding? Here, well, here's what happens. Two people make a covenant, and two become one. A new family is birthed. That is a time to celebrate. And what Jesus is saying, you know, remember, he's preaching about the kingdom of God. And, the, and, the, and the John's disciples are saying, why don't you fast? Why don't your disciples fast? Well, Jesus is the divine bridegroom. And Jesus, by calling his disciples, as he calls Matthew, and by pursuing the broken and the sinful and the marginalized people, giving them this invitation to come into the kingdom of God, people's lives are being transformed, and God's family is being formed. A, a, a new family is being created through Christ. And he's saying, this is a wedding. <laughs> this is a time to celebrate. That's why my disciples don't fast. And then he goes on, he says, well, listen, there's going to come a day when the bridegroom will be taken away. Referring to his, I think, crucifixion. And then there will be time for mourning. But now, I'm here, the bridegroom, we're here. I'm, I'm inaugurating God's kingdom. It's a time to celebrate. And then he gives this very odd image of old garments and old wineskins. All right, so we're almost done here. Verses 16 and 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and worse, a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, the wine is spilled, the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And you go, what in the world does this have to do with why your disciples don't fast? Do you know anybody like this who, like, you ask them, like, a simple, pointed question, and they philosophy and, and, you know, are like they give you some answer that seems to make no sense. This is, this is an indirect answer, and, but it's brilliant. So here's what Jesus is saying. So garments in the day, in Jesus' day, were primarily made of wool or linen. So patching an old garment, an old torn garment with a new unshrunk cloth, what would happen the first time that that garment was washed with that new piece of cloth. What would happen to the new patch? It would shrink. Is that good for a torn garment that's patched with the new patch? No. What would happen? The, the, the tear would become even greater. It would grow. Same with wineskins. If you were to put in that day, the wineskins were leather. If you took an old brittle wineskin and you put new wine in it, 
is that wine began to, essentially you're putting juice in it, and as it fermented, what would happen? Gases would be released, and there's a big boom, right? And you lose the wine, and you lose the wineskin. How many of you are freaked out by balloons? <laughs> like popping, right? Um, I used to torture my kids by, you know, popping balloons around them all the time, and my wife, if I'm being honest. <laughs> she can't ride in the car with a balloon to this day. <laughs> True story. So these old wineskins, though, have, they've lost, they're no longer elastic. But a new wineskin, it's elastic. It'll, it'll expand as the gases are released. So what's the point here, Jesus? The Pharisees, remember, these religious leaders, they had created these difficult ways and rules and regulations to relate to God. So if you want to be a part of our community, you've got to, be, you've got to do this, 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 and this, which means, again, it's so exclusive. And it's based upon rituals and traditions, not a change of heart. And it's extremely difficult to live like this. And Jesus says this to John's disciples, listen, God is doing a new thing through me. And the invitation to be part of God's kingdom is open to anyone who would receive me. I'll transform them. But here it is. What God is doing through me won't mix with the old. I didn't come to add on to these rules and regulation. God is doing something new and fresh. And the new and old won't mix. Jesus is ushering in a new covenant here. And the Pharisees' rules and regulations that they had added to the law, they will not hold the new wine that Jesus has brought. So let me give you just some quick application. Number one, let me remind you that everyone needs the gospel. Everyone, Zach, you can go and come up. Everyone needs the gospel. Have you noticed how many celebrity de deaths there have been lately? Betty White, Bob Saget, Louis Anderson, Meatloaf. And what's so interesting is this. Betty White is like one of America's sweethearts, right? Meatloaf is known for his album, Bad Out of Hell. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I won't do that. <laughs> yeah, you know that one, Bob? You probably do, yeah. Bob Saget, I know, I'm going to ruin some of you up, guys, because all you know him from, some of you, is Full House and Fuller House. Have you ever heard his comedy? He's one of the most vile, yeah, don't look, I tell you, look it up, don't look it up. Crude, vile, disgusting. Sorry. Because some of you are like, if anybody's saved, it's Bob Saget, he was on Full House. Some of you are like, if, if anybody's saved, it's Betty White. How in the world could Betty White not be good enough to get into the, yeah, there you go. She's a golden girl. How could she not be good enough? But the truth is this. Betty White, Bob Saget, Louis Anderson, Meatloaf, all of them fall short of the glory of God. So unless they've received the gospel of Jesus Christ and allowed God to come in and transform them and make them new, if they have not been born again, Betty White, Bob Saget, Louis Anderson, Meatloaf, none of them tragically are with the Lord now. So maybe you are more of a Betty White. You think you're, you're a... A sweetheart, right? A golden girl. 
Thank you for helping me preach. I love it. You're a golden girl. Or if you're a meatloaf, if you're a bat out of hell, and some of you feel that way, can I just say, the gospel is open for every one of us. And the only way you get in, even if you think you're Betty White, the only way you get into the kingdom is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Second point of application, the gospel always transforms us. So this idea, some of you have prayed a prayer in your heart, wherever that came from. Some of you have been baptized, which the Bible commands us to do. But there has been no transformation in your life. And the evidence of true salvation is to do what Matthew did. It's to get up and to follow Jesus. To leave the sin and, and that old life behind. The drunkenness, the, the sexual immorality, the lying, the cheating, all of this. I'm not saying that every once in a while you don't stumble. But your desire when you truly follow Jesus is to leave the tax booth and say, Hey! Jesus, I'm yours. And that's not drudgery, by the way. It's a reason, as Matthew did, to, sh- to, to throw a party. It's a good thing, the life that the Lord calls us to. Number three, a reminder that the gospel should always flow through us. I hope you have some tax collectors and sinners over to your house every once in a while like Matthew did. Because we're not called just to come in here and have our cute little church services and become spiritual hermits when we go into the world. No, we're called to be a light to the nations. And we need to start sharing our testimony to share the gospel and to serve people relentlessly that they may know the goodness of Jesus Christ. And finally, and very importantly, let's be reminded that you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Hear me please everybody. I know I've been preaching a while. Last thing I'm going to talk about, gospel and legalism do not mix. And there is a a spirit of the Pharisees that is alive here in the Bible Belt, particularly right here. I'm not saying in this church, in this area. The new and the old don't mix. And we are notorious. As Bible Belt Christians, for putting extra biblical commands, cultural ideas that we've come up with. We say, this is wrong and this is wrong. You can't do this. The Bible gives you enough of right and wrong to be adding other stuff on top of it. And so we go, well, Mama always said, foosball is of the devil, right? <laughs> Something like that. I haven't seen Waterboy in a while. So, so you take that and then, but it's, it's not just Mama said, it's now Jesus says. When Jesus didn't say football's of the devil or foosball's of the devil or whatever it is. Right? So we are make, we, we're telling people, hey, come to Jesus. He'll change you. He'll save you. And by the way, here's a list of our rules that you also have to follow. You got to dress like this. You got uh, you, you to wear this. You got to, you know, you can wear, you have to wear lots of makeup. You don't wear any makeup, whatever your preference is. You know, this is, this is what the, the Lord wants of you. And we're trying to mix gospel and legalism and it doesn't work and it'll frustrate people I had a I found an old membership card when I came to this church uh, they I probably hadn't used it for years but one of the in order to be a member you had to sign a, a covenant that you would never go to a movie theater now if that's your conviction and I'm not saying that's a bad conviction if that's your conviction so be it and there are probably some movies you should not go see but if you want to take your kids to a kids movie or you want to see a, you know, go see, even there's Christian movies in the theater. 
to sign a blanket statement and say, you can't go if you want to be part of our community. That's sinful. <laughs> Not sinful on your part. It's sinful on the people trying to tell you, put rules that God didn't put on you. We want to tell you what to eat, what to drink. We, we want to put so many rules on you. And friends, gospel and grace, gospel and legalism do not mix. Let's be careful that we don't become like the Pharisees and add to the gospel message. Are you with me? Are you happy this morning? It's warm in here. <laughs> I am burning up, uh, but you stayed awake, most of you. Uh, God bless you for that. Stand with me. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And thank you that you called us not you met us right where we are. You meet us right where we are. But thank the Lord you don't leave us that way. You make us new. We are born again by your grace, filled with your spirit, changed and transformed. There's one in here that doesn't know you in that way. May they call upon you in faith today. May nobody in this room listening to my voice online believe the lie that they are good enough. That they're good enough to receive salvation, to receive your love. None of us are good enough. Thank you. It's only through Christ. He is the only way of salvation. And we celebrate that today. Help us not to mix gospel and legalism. Forgive us, God, for those things. And help us to have hearts today that when we leave this place are so on fire, so passionate, so zealous, to reach lost people for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.